Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Hi, I'm Scott Postma, president of Kepler Education, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swate, our student advisor. Welcome, Joffrey. I'm glad to be here. And it's noteworthy that today we have a very positive episode. So we've been getting a lot of great interaction on uh, the recent series we did, which really talked about how modern education is bankrupt. So it was a lot of demolition work. Today, we actually get to do some positive building work. Let's construct some architecture, some framing. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about the right kind of education today. Which, right out of the gate, I'm going to say that is supposing the moral high ground, if you will, that we are saying that there is a right kind of education, which implies there's an edu- kind of education that's not right. That's right. And, of course, we'll be defining our terms. Uh, but, you know, it, it should be known. You know, we, we want people from the off to have the understanding that we don't think the right kind of education is a geometric point, some right. sort of monad. It is a broad river. But it is a river with banks. Some is. stuff is not the river. That's right. Yeah, it does have banks. And and um, we would even go so far as to say it's not, or to make it clear, it's not a curriculum. We'll talk more about that. Yes. But it's not a, a particular curriculum either. So, Well, it's yeah. a way of life. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been saying, and, and this is a little bit different definition, but it's something that I think um, is what has been implied in what we've been talking about. And It's been stated in other ways, but the wrong kind of education, the kind of education that we often see that we're used to um, is the kind of education where the culture has been, you know, cultivated into cogs. And so a culture where education is strictly job training is a culture we believe whose God becomes greed and its people slaves, whether that's to corporations, to governments, to vice, but it creates a certain kind of enslavement. Yes. And, and let's really focus on the word vice for a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, vice is where vicious comes from and where the idea of a vicious circle comes from. And so, you know, if we say vice, you immediately think of Miami vice because you're, you're <laughs> of that generation. But we're not just talking about cocaine and illicit crimes. No, we're talking about the fact that, for example, if you've been involved with government schools, you got used to getting a babysitter. Right. And it makes sense that you became kind of dependent, right? So that, but, but it creates a vicious circle. It is. And we need to escape from it. Yeah. And Aristotle gives us a wonderful definition. Um, since we're classical educators, you think about Aristotle's vice and virtue, right? So there's a lot of ways. Actually, I like the way Tolstoy sums up mm. um, Aristotle in the opening of, and I probably always say this wrong, Anna Karenina, where um, he says that every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Yes. And every happy family is happy in the same way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is beautiful. And I've always loved that quote. But I do have to admit that you know, when you start talking Aristotle, I'm like, okay, I can hang with this guy. Uh, as soon as you bring in Tolstoy, that's where I start to, uh, to feel you're... a little nervous. But that quote is an absolute classic. And if you're hearing it for the first time, hear it again. Would you share it with us again, Scott? Yeah. He says, every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And every happy family is happy in the same way. Mm. Which, which sums up Aristotle, who says that there's really only one way to be virtuous and a lot of ways to be vicious, mm-hmm. a lot of ways to fall into vice. And so the, the classic example has been courage, right? Is a, it's, it's a virtue, but to be excessive 
if you're, if you're excessive, then you become rash. But if you're deficient, you're a coward. Right. Right. So you can be either, there's two ways in that illustration to be vicious uh, and fall into vice and one way to be virtuous. Yeah. I mean, uh, even just thinking about cowardliness, right? I mean, the coward dies a thousand times, Yeah, you know, and, and really like, you know, if, if, if you're living virtuously, you just die that once, that right? One time. And, but it's, it's, it's constantly how it is. And all of those of us with uh, consciences that have been pricked by guilt at one point or another, we, you know, we know that, but, you know, it really is, um, it is a vice mm-hmm. to fall into, into the thinking that both Christians and heathens and pagans do this. Um, which is to think that when we say there is one way, mm-hmm. or if we say the way is narrow, then we imagine a curriculum of behavior. Right. 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 And then absolutely not. not no. Yeah. Um, and so now that we're talking about education, we're not describing, you know, a, a step-by-step, like you must follow these paths and read these, these books uh, or else. No, no, that's not the case. But there's definitely a, there, a, a, a right education is a certain thing and there are of course you know broad is the path that leads to bad education right <laughs> <laughs> and there is one narrow way and and what what Joffrey summer summing up here with the idea that it's not a particular curriculum you know we um, we have like you know Mortimer Adler's great books and and I'm not I'm not bashing I think what he was attempting to do was great but that in itself is a sort of prescribed curriculum that's right right um, even within a sort of liberal arts tradition and I, and I know the direction where where he meant uh, to to lead people but we're not talking about a particular you know it's not the core curriculum it's it's not Adler's great book series you know it's not even Elliot's uh, five-foot bookshelf right so so before we start getting really into okay well uh, the great books or mm-hmm. the great conversation conversation. Um, you know, you, you just use the term liberal arts. So let's define what we're saying the right kind of education is. Yeah. And then we'll unpack it. But the right kind of education, y'all, is a liberal arts education. That's right. So a liberal arts education can be stated as the pursuit and acquisition of that knowledge, which is pleasurable for its own sake, and which frees the mind and prepares the soul to be wise and virtuous. Mm. It's very interesting that the um, secular or, you know, pagan, noble pagan, Seneca, um, said that you cannot make a soul, you cannot educate a soul to be virtuous, which is really interesting, right? Given a lot of the modern kind of pagan secular view that we can educate people to be good. Yes, which is, you know, as a completely, uh, as as a side comment, you know, maybe really not so much on the side. That's the same sort of thinking that goes into how our penal system is constantly trying to rehabilitate. Right. It's well, that is an outpouring. So I don't think it's an aside. That's just down the river a little bit further. Right. Yeah. But that that's exactly so they're correctional facilities, not penitentiaries anymore. Yeah. Which basically makes all all education brainwashing, mm-hmm. which is, you know, what it's hilarious because Christians are accused of brainwashing all the time. Right. And, you know, <laughs> you know there, there's a, sometimes I just want to roll my eyes and say, well, who's going to be the one brainwashing my kids? Right. Somebody's going to Somebody. brainwash them. But really, honestly, I don't do that because I'm not going to accept that term. We're educating, we're raising and. Government institutions aren't going to do that. A, 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 neither a 
government school nor a government prison are going to educate, are going to form souls. That's right. Well, I, I have to tell, there's a, a funny story. A re, it's a true story. Um, there was in the, I want to say it was in the 60s and 70s. This is before the homeschooling moving got big. Uh, but there was a preacher down in Texas um, who had a bunch of boys' homes and girls' homes, and the state of Texas came after him. Um, and on the stand, um, and, and you'd have to know this guy, but on the stand, they said, um, you are using this Bible to brainwash kids. And he said, I agree. He said, their, their minds are filthy and dirty. <laughs> and he said, and they need a good washing. So yet we're using the Bible to, to wash their oh, minds. Im- imagine the hay the, ma- the press made of that. Oh, but, yeah. That's that's where he's going. So yeah, the idea is somebody's going to be forming. Um, But but Seneca, going back to that original statement, he he recognized that no one can actually um, put virtue into, but a liberal arts education, he said, is what prepares the soul to receive virtue. Mm. It prepares the heart to be able to accept virtuous things because it's formed and shaped in a certain way, like we've been talking about. Scott Posma. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who are listening i was expecting a prompt yes joffrey Swaite. yeah uh, and he just looked at me uh, scott postman i'm a teacher mm-hmm. so i like to have definitions twice i'm going to read your definition again please yes all right so what we're talking about a general definition of a liberal arts education can be stated as the pursuit and acquisition of that knowledge which is pleasure pleasurable for its own sake and which frees the mind and prepares the soul to be wise and virtuous. That's right. Now, of course, we've already unpacked uh, a good bit of that, but that's basically what we're going to be unpacking uh, the entire episode. So I wanted to get another reading out there. Yeah, wonderful. Well, one of the things that's often helpful to do when we're talking, you know, to take this definition a little bit further. So we, we've given a, a sort of, you know, general general definition, which means this is the kind of knowledge, first of all, that's pleasurable for its own sake, right? So um, one of the things that Aristotle noted was that human beings, one of the things that separate us from the animals is we want to know. Right. We want to know things. So it's it's part of our, um, it's just part of our nature to want to know, okay? Uh, and there's a sort of satisfaction just in knowing things. You know, I mean, think mm. about how successful Google is. You know, somebody just wants to know something. You can just Google it nowadays, right? Yes. And, you know, I actually think that's the that's a way to measure the liveliness of a soul. Mm-hmm. How much satisfaction do you take in learning new things? And a freeman want to know new things. Yes. Okay. And that's part of that frees the mind, right? And prepares the soul. That's right. You're not simply passively receiving the skills necessary to perform the job. You are a great soul sailing uh, on your bark uh, (laughs) upon the earth, you know? And it's like, it's just your colossus. Act like it. That's it. A man told me one time when I was a new Christian, he said, you're a child of the king. Yeah. Now go out and live like it. Mm. And it's just like, Wow, that stuck with me, you know, the yeah. idea that this is, this is your realm, you know, and so now go live out, you know, as a child of the king. And that's what a liberal arts, you know, education prepares somebody to do. Now, the word art, when we, we talk about, I'll come back and talk about liberal in a second, but let's talk about um, what liberal is actually, you know, defining. The word art is comes from the Greek word techne, right? Yeah. So we're familiar with that. And that a lot of times talks about a craft or a trade. So art implies the possession of a certain skill set. Now, that skill set can either be endowed by nature, attained by practice, but usually comes 
in both, right? And so craft and trade are, are both accurate definitions of art in the classical sense, but they're a little bit inadequate to qualify our meaning without us adding that adjective liberal, okay? And that distinguishes between three different very popular arts, mm. right? So there's the servile arts. Today we call them the trades. Um, and and I, I suspect we talk about them as trades because when people think of servile arts, yes. okay, we're talking about plumbers, uh, carpenters, um, you know, concrete layers. People will say they're in the service industry. Yeah. But if you say the servile arts, people will react. And I get it. Yeah. They, you yeah. Know, the word servile is loaded. We're bringing it all the way back from 2000 years ago, y'all. That That's it. But it's in, in its original contract, uh, context, that's not what it meant. Right. right. It just meant these are the, these are the crafts that you learn to do with your hand. And those, by the way, I just want to say this, those are noble arts. Yes absolutely noble arts and no one should ever be ashamed of those. But one of the things, I mean, I think you'll agree with me on, yeah. on, on this, um, is that we believe that someone who grows up to be a carpenter should receive a liberal arts education. Absolutely. And one of the reasons for that is that um, we're not pagans. Mm -hmm. We do, in fact, believe that the sons and daughters of God, of the king, are the sons and daughters of the king and ought to behave that way. And if they choose to make their vocation, the way they make the world more beautiful is by making chairs or serving hamburgers, mm -hmm. then they should be doing it like a prince. Absolutely. Which, um, and this this could take us in a total different direction, so I won't go there, but I just want to mention it briefly. Oh, indulge yourself. Someone with a liberal arts education is going to be more inclined to be a craftsman. Yes. Rather than an assembly person sitting on a line you know, and more likely to be an entrepreneur. I, I completely sure. agree. Yeah. Uh, but that also means that that a, a free man who begins to flip burgers is far more likely to take over the burger joint and one day own the burger That's joint. Right. Absolutely. Right? Because he cares and he loves. That's right. There, there is a, a passion and a desire uh, that goes beyond just, you know, performing. That's right. So we have the servile arts. Then we have the fine arts. And, you know, so you could probably talk about the fine arts, but the fine arts are painting and art as we think about it. Do we prefer the term artiste? Artiste. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, so, so these are our fine arts, right? Yeah. And, and so those are distinguished. But then the liberal arts, okay? So this is an, another kind of art. So again, these are skills or crafts. Uh, they're a techne. But the word liberal here is what often gets people kind of confused. Um, you know, people say liberal arts and automatically their mind goes to opposite of conservative or something like right. that. Yeah, but that's not what it means at all. It comes from libere, which means freely. And then um, the Latin adjective liberalis means freedom or free citizens. And this is actually where the word like gentleman, uh, this is where it came from. So when you think about, you know, an old English gentleman, this is somebody who is, uh, has received a liberal arts education. They might be landowners and they can read and they can write and correspond and they can be statesmen and, you know, they can, they can function in all parts of society. Right. right. And, and so a liberal arts uh, then refers to that which pertains to freedom of like a free person, a free society. Um, Dr. James Shaw, in his book, The Life of the Mind, um, he was the professor of political philosophy at the Department of Government at Georgetown University um, and, and held that 
office for, you know, that chair for years. But he points out that certain disciplines, particularly what is known from Aristotle as metaphysics, are called freeing subjects. And so he says that such liberal discipline is undertaken for its own sake, and that is for the purpose of the knowledge gained, is not to do anything with it. It is just to know something uh, that it is for its own pleasure or, or to know it for its its own pleasure. I 100% agree with that. And that's a very beautiful thought. Uh, but then I urge those who are stuck in a utilitarian mindset mm-hmm. to consider that although we study these things for their own sake, for the sake of the pleasure of the knowledge, and that's true, and that is that is what should motivate you. Let us uh, take a step back and observe the effects of such an education. Mm. The effects of such an education are that that person can do really almost anything they set their mind to. That's right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that is practically very freeing. You free the mind, you free and discipline it. Yeah, absolutely. And then the result is, the effect is, you didn't do it in order to get a leg up on your career. But the fact that you got this kind of education means that you can, in fact, build the things you want to build. Yeah, because you are able then at that point um, to do things that, you know, are more than just what somebody may have, you know, assigned you to do, right? You can, you can actually, um, you can, you can go in a lot of directions. While you were talking, I was looking for a quote and I wasn't able to find it. Um, and, and so I'm going to butcher this quote. Do but it. There was a great quote where the, a guy said, you know, he was talking about a man should be able to grow his own food, craft, uh, you know, uh, craft a military campaign, uh, build a house, change a diaper, um, you know, and, and read a book and write correspondence to a statesman. And he was just kind of going through, you know, what, what would an ideal man look like? And these are the kinds of men that a liberal arts education produces, just like you were describing. Right. And, yeah. that, you know, and I think maybe a key word we can think about, you know, just to, just to be playful is the word conception. Mm. Yeah. Right. So uh, the Christians who are educated in the liberal arts can both birth things yep. in that sense of conception, Correct. Uh, but they can also conceive of things. Mm-hmm. Right. And obviously, you know, <laughs> if we dig down deep enough, those are the same idea. Right. But, you know, th- that's where creativity comes from. Right. Right. And so if, if we are going to be sub creators, if we are going to be like God, Right. We want to have the tools and the mindset and the the mind that's been educated to, in fact, conceive broadly, wildly right. like this. This never would have occurred to, well, someone educated in a government school, <laughs> <laughs> but it occurred to you. Why? Because of the width, the breadth, the depth of your education. And maybe that leads us to the great conversation, the great books. It, it does. And I think that that would take us there. I want to make just one more comment um, before we You didn't like there. my segue? I loved your segue. It was great. <laughs> but you said something in your segue that I think it, it's very relevant and because of its, its modern um, application. But someone, if you, if you just Google Elon Musk and yeah. listen to some of the things he says, he, you know, he says, it's a waste of your time and money to go to college. You can learn everything that you want to know um, by, you know, there's videos, there's free education. You can learn everything and become the kind of person that can do the kinds of things he does. Right. Um, but that is the mind of a liberal arts, a person with a liberal yes, arts education. Absolutely. And and so it's not, like you said, confined to this particular um, place, but uh, this particular curriculum or, or um, you know, one particular course of action. 
so in this segue, let me let me read this opening in the preface to the very first book in the Mortimer Adler series. Um, Robert Hutchins writes an introduction, an introductory book called The Great Conversation. Okay, and I'm just going to read the very first paragraph, which is a couple sentences, and we can kind of riff off this. But I think it gives us a good idea of what we mean when we're talking about you know, this river uh, and all that it contains and what the banks look like and, and what we can, you know, what we can explore. But he says, until lately, the West has regarded itself, excuse me, regarded it as self-evident that the road to education lay through great books. No man was educated unless he was acquainted with the masterpieces of his tradition. There never was very much doubt in anybody's mind about which the masterpieces were. They were the books that had endured and that the common voice of mankind called the finest creations in writing of the Western mind. So the two criterion uh, criteria that he gives are that, number one, they're books that endured, right? And then these are also books that other minds acted upon. These are other books that other people engaged with because Which is part the of why they endured. Big. That's right. Yeah. yeah, they were worth it. I went to this old bookstore one time. I love, you know, you were a bookstore. My that was my dream job. If I was ever super duper wealthy and I didn't have to make any money, I would just <laughs> trade books. I, I love it. But I went to this um, uh, some old place. You know, when we we're traveling, every time we go somewhere, I always look for an old bookstore, and. Uh, I was asking if they had used books or, and they said, oh yeah, we have a, a section back here of just, you know, stock full of old books. And these are all, uh, they were 18th and 19th century books. Mm. And so I went to the, you know, I went to the shelf and started pulling things off. I had not heard of any of the authors. I had not uh, recognized any of the titles. And some of these were in like really pristine condition. And I'm looking through these and it immediately occurred to me, the reason that these books <laughs> have endured or that they're sitting here is because nobody, nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted them. They were just sitting, they'd been sitting on shelves. And, and So you're looking at remainders from 200 years ago. That's exactly it. <laughs> that That's exactly what this whole, and it was a whole room full of just that. When I say room, you know, it was, it was a small room, but, uh, but I was just surprised that, you know, because they were old, they seemed like they were valuable yes. to people, but they weren't valuable. Well, I just, you know, I, again, indulge me in an aside, but that was one of my banes uh, as a bookseller. I mean, the, the principal one was people bringing in copies of Twilight and wanting money for them. But, <laughs> but you, another. You paid them to take them back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But another was when people would bring, uh, you know, bring the books that they inherited from grandma mm. and their reaction when I told them I didn't want any of them. That there was nothing of interest you in hurt their feelings. Oh man, <laughs> deeply. And and the, what the counter argument, if you'll allow me to use such an extravagant term, was often, but these are so old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm not going to go into the publishing boom of the 19th century and how all this binding is terrible. Let's just focus on the content. No one is going to want to buy this book. Yeah, and nobody wants to. Well, this that is an example of what C.S. Lewis <clears throat> called chronological snobbery, right? right? So just because it was in a particular time doesn't mean it was valuable. So the idea of a, a great books education, and, and we've talked about this before, that very want to be very careful about what we mean by great books and great conversation. Because when we say this, we're, we're using small, we're not using the capital letters, right? right? This isn't a particular canon that Mortimer Adler came up with, or the Elliot came up with, or somebody else came up with. We're talking about these timeless books that 
minds, great minds have acted upon. Uh, they have been uh, engaged with because they reflect great ideas that have shaped culture yes. for bad and for good. That have shaped culture is a very important idea. Um, one of my uh, son's teachers doesn't like Milton at all. You better believe she teaches Milton. I love Paradise Lost and a few of his smaller poems, but I find a lot of his poetry very self-indulgent. Mm. So I have mixed feelings about Milton. And then there are people who absolutely love everything Milton has done. But they're all going to teach Milton. We're all going to teach Milton. Right. Because I mean, because Milton ought to be taught because Milton has made people talk for centuries and not just because, you know, school masters across British centuries forced it on people, but because it was that impactful. Right. Those were the big ideas, the big ideas that Milton raised. Uh, yes. and, and it comes at a time when in world history, right? You know, right. at the end of the English Civil Wars, I mean, this is coming at a time when the world is changing drastically. Yes, many great epics have been written and lost to to mass memory. And, and that's okay. You know what? Timeliness is a part of the impact that it has. That's right. A lot of the reason we read the great books, I mean, we read them because they're great, but but it's not only their greatness that separates them, mm -hmm. right? Of course, it's their impact. And sometimes it just has to do with timeliness. You know, this had to come out at that time. Right. And then That's everybody right. was hit by it. Yes. And now we're downstream from that. We ought to study it. The Aeneid for me is a book like that, mm. right? And and even though it was largely recognized largely as, as a book of propaganda, right? Yeah, it, it meant to, yes. to make Augustus look good and, and, and the, <laughs> you know, the, the other Empire. day. <laughs> The other day I was, uh, I was on a website and someone was, was trashing the Aeneid um, with that. Like he was like revealing to us all this like big thing, like, Hey, you know, the Aeneid is not that good. It's like pure propaganda. And like, he was blowing our minds. Everybody else on the website knew that, right. that particular website, <laughs> you know, it's not like, I don't think everybody knows that, but you know, Hey, you know what? We were, all of us here kind of know that and, and love it anyway. Right. Like, you know, stop trying to blow our minds with this novelty and just talk to us about the book. But propaganda, yeah. And propaganda didn't mean, um, it, it has a similar connotation today, um, but it didn't always have the same implications. Right. And right. so propaganda well, can be good yeah. if you're propagating. Well, and and right he, he was a pagan. So he was creating a, a, a pagan sort of mythology yeah. to justify Rome. But, um, you know, Christians have, have done the same thing. We all love Tolkien. I, that was Tolkien's project. I say, that was, yeah, that's how what he started out. He wanted to create a myth for England. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, so, but this, but so that in itself tells us why these books are great, right? Because what we're trying to do is conceptualize the meaning for a people's existence, a meaning for what they have done, whether it's good or, or, or bad. Right. I've been recently listening to, um, uh, a work basically on uh, the Battle of Hastings and leading up, everything leading up to it. And and so when you're looking at all the different sources, everything from, you know, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to Portier and, and their various takes on this, um, you know, each of them had a different uh, vantage point with a different a motive in propaganda. Yes. Right? So they, they're going to tell the story a little bit differently. And those are some of the interesting things that we get an insight into the culture of the people and the ideas that shape that culture, both preceding it and following it. Absolutely. That's why, and I, I realize I'm being kind of self-indulgent this, uh, this episode, but that's why I endorse the King James Bible to everyone uh, who's listening. Yeah. You know, um, it's uh, as a translation 
as a, you know, I, I, I am trying to avoid saying piece of literature, <laughs> but as a translation, you know, the, the phrasing and the lyricism of that particular translation so deeply impacted us. Yes. You know, the salt of the earth, that right. expression is from that Bible. Skin of your teeth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, we should all read the King James at right. least once. Yes. You know, go back to your ESV or NIV later. That's fine. But like, let's have that great education. Let's read the King James too. It's funny. I came out of a tradition right. early on that was yeah. King James only in terms Ooh. of, but from a theological perspective. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I moved away from that, you know, years ago. Uh, but then, you know, for the very reason you just mentioned in its literary sense, it's unequaled, you know, in, in terms of, of what it has done to a culture. Right. Yes. So for four or 500 years now, we you know we have been influenced by this book. Right. And certainly everyone who's listening to this podcast in English. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've talked about uh, a liberal arts education being the right kind of education. We laid down that gauntlet at the yep. beginning of the episode and we said, okay, well, what is it? Yeah. And, and, and we talked about, well, okay, this is, this is what a liberal arts education is and it's deep and wide. Uh, and we've begun to talk a little bit about the corpus, yeah. right? And we don't want to, you know, necessarily use a, a capital letters, great books list. Right. Right. And so, you know, again, just we really want to drum home that we're not talking about a geometric point, that this is the thing that you need to do with your kids. Right? We're not saying that. Well, we're, we're kind of fleshing out a lot of what we've been leading up to in all these episodes that are pedagogical. Yes. Right. And, uh, and we believe that every parent ought to, to be thinking pedagogically. That's right. right? Um, because really uh, education is raising your kids. That's, that's, that's what education exactly is. What it is. It's, yeah. You know, we've been, you know, we've been beating that drum for the beginning. It's not a chemistry course. We could just, we could sum up every podcast by saying this. Okay. Education is raising your children. So you're either going to let the state raise them <laughs> to yeah. think the way they want, or you raise them to thank them, to make them think accurately or teach them what to think. That's right. But, you know, we've started talking about the great books. Let's hit another phrase that is, well, it's, it's one that's impactful in the classical Christian world. The great conversation. Yes, yep. So the great conversation is that dialogue that has been taking place for the last what, 3,000 years right. you know, in the Western tradition. Around these great works. Exactly. So it's, well, these works themselves become that conversation. Yes. So it's it's not like, you know, Plato and Aristotle set up on, you know, in different places and, you know, we're, we're talking back and forth. So that would make it a, that would make it a curriculum, by the way. Yes, that there you go. So Aristotle was a student of Plato. And this is just one little tiny microcosm of, you know, this great, big conversation. And so he studied under Plato, but then, you know, formulated some of his own ideas, put forth some of the things and responded to some of the things he thought Plato was wrong about and why Plato was wrong. And then other people have interacted with yeah. Aristotle, you know, and, the, and so it goes on. That's right. And, and you, you know, so you, hey, you, you roll into little pseudo Dionysius, you roll into Augustine, you roll into, you know, you just keep going. That's right? right. And you, you, you hit the reformation and then you breathe a sigh of relief sometimes <laughs> and you just keep going, you keep going and you hit Lewis, you hit Tolkien uh, and, and the closer you get to today, the the broader the river may seem. The more the more we call it, we we question whether this you know is right. is Tolkien part of because timelessness you know, is part of it. Exactly right, and and I am firmly convinced 
that the trilogy of the rings is timeless. Um, (laughs) I'm taking a stand. (laughs) Here I stand. I can do no other. (laughs) Uh, It has all the markings of a classical work, even though it doesn't have timelessness on its side. We won't be able to settle it until we're, we're looking down from heaven a couple of centuries from now. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) That'll remind you of this conversation. And I will tell you, I was right now. I'm just kidding. We we, we were (laughs) both both right. right. Yeah. (laughs) I know you agree with me. But but the, the point is that as we get closer, you know, it, it, you know, some of that comes a little more into, you know, sure. is everyone going to study Calvin? Well, maybe not, but everyone is going to study Augustine. That's right. Right. Yes. Uh, and so, but it's not because, you know, there's some established canon, like you must study Augustine, but you can't study Western civilization seriously without studying Augustine. Now, you know, as you get closer to today, that there is a little more like, hmm, this, and that's part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So the great conversation is all these works interacting with each other. And then at the very end of it, there you are interacting with it. That's right. Now you're engaged in this conversation. That's right. By, and, and part of that, it, which gets back to the pedagogy we were talking about a moment ago, is that part of what we do in a classical Christian education is to teach students to read these books interactively, actively reading. So they're not just passively taking it in, right. but they're annotating in the book as they read. So, yes. you know, I mean, this, these are some little practical tips, but a lot of families, you know, where, you know, kids were raised, I know, you know, don't write in the books, don't mess them. And, you know, I encourage my students, write in your book. Yeah. Um, and annotate, so, ask questions. Yeah, yeah, annotate, ask questions. So that makes me... I want to prod you into expounding upon uh, something that's a, an integral part of how we at Kepler Education teach. Mm-hmm. This is how Kepler teachers teach, and many great teachers through history have done so. Talk to me about Socratic dialogue. Tell tell me in the audience what that is and how it fits into a classroom setting, into a setting where the students are at the feet of the master. Yeah, very good. Well, that is that is what you know, in the practical sense, when the student comes to the to the recitation port of, portion of their education, they have interacted with the reading, right? Sometimes there's a lecture that goes with it, you know, generally just kind of give them some context. But then they get to interact with the actual author, right? This, this great thinker who has been, you know, talked about and interacted with. So they read the primary source and then they come and we, in, in class, we get to engage that author together. And, you know, you talk about the teacher being the master, they're going to ask, you know, various questions to the students and get them to think about concepts. So, um, we're going to ask questions that are, um, you know, contextual questions, you know, basically, Mm -hmm. you know, and those are, you know, just to make sure that they're understanding the context, what they read. But then we're going to start asking questions, you know, that are a little bit more uh, engaging into the idea itself, right? Why did Shylock say what he said? Yes. (laughs) Well, what, what is, you know, what does Shylock represent, right? Right. You know, in, in, you know, what portion of, of, um, of humanity, not just his Jewishness, you know, that's going to be, come into it. Why did, why is Shylock, you know, why is he the, the greedy who wants his pound of flesh, you know, so that's going to come into it, which part of the modern project is to get rid of some of these things that seem, that's, that seems anti-Semitic. Inst- right. Instead of actually having the conversation. Right. right. And actually confronting it, you know, and people have had different opinions about Shylock, right. that character over the centuries, it, you know, before 
our postmodern project before all this deconstruction, there was disagreement. That's about, right. People had conversations about this character and conversations about Shakespeare and what he was trying to do. And it was wonderful. <laughs> and now we can't talk about it. Right. So you, you, for in a classical education, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the character. We're going to talk about the author. What did the author use the character to do? What did the character represent? What part of society? What does that mean? Um, how is it relevant today? So we're going to ask all these kinds of questions and then students will engage in this conversation in answering other students come in and, and, and may give some sort of, of response to that. So and are the, you saying that if I show up for one of your classes, I'm going to have a great conversation? Yes, we're going to have a <laughs> great conversation. And, capital G, capital C. And, and these, uh, and, and the wonderful thing, okay. So when you hear students all the time saying, I hate school, I don't want to, you know, when, when you come to a recitation in a, in a great conversation like this, and, and when we're using the word now, we're talking about the actual conversation in the classroom. Um, the teacher acts more like a midwife than a lecturer. Um, and Socrates used that term mm. to, to draw out the truth, right? Yes. We're going to help them deliver what they have been impregnated with as they have read the author themselves. And they're going to come to life. That's right. You know, if we think about it grammatically, you know, the kids who hate school, it's because they've constantly been the object of yep. education, not the subjects. That's right. Right. And that's really what you know, we want. We want princelings and, and princesses. We want we agents. Yes. Well, that's why we teach students, not a curriculum. That's right. Yeah. So, and by teaching, what we're doing is bringing these ideas to fruition, letting them handle them. Uh, the mark of a good philosopher and I keep going back to, I don't know why we're talking about so much Aristotle today, but going back to Aristotle to be able to handle the idea without actually embracing it. Yeah. So we're going to look at this from every single angle. And then as a classical Christian educator, then we always, um, and I think it's important to talk about this. I always encourage my kids, lay aside your Christian immediate Christian response, right? Because it's very easy for us to give that Sunday school answer. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> we're just, I'm just going to give my, my Christian judgment. But let's back off and, and, and we're not laying it aside and we're not dismissing it, but let's stop for a second and let's handle it for its own sake, on yeah. its own terms, on its own merits. That's then, what objectivity is, by the way, right. Yeah. right? Is being able to step outside. You know, I, I think that one of the reasons objectivity has become bankrupt as modernism bankrupted is that we all imagined that we could be truly objective, objective outside the world, mm. objective in a godlike sense. That's not the case. What objectivity for a Christian is, is being able to put on different hats, different glasses, right? That's right. And, you know, and, and, but that's it. You're, you know, you're not being God. You're not, <laughs> you know, floating out in space, looking down upon the whole world, like, you know, like modern man. See, that's why it's a modern idea. Modern man believed he was God and believed he could achieve Right. He could build that Tower of Babel. That's right. And then it all fell down. And so we laugh at the idea of objectivity. That was the wrong idea of objectivity <laughs> <Right>. all along. <laughs> well, then these students, after they handle this objectively mm -hmm. um, as, as, and, and learn to handle things objectively, then we can come and apply the gospel. And one of the most wonderful parts of being a teacher in this you know, aspect is watching to see how the gospel is really good news. Mm. And I think this is where oh. a lot of families in our modern world have lost their kids when they go off to university yep. because we've just told them, this is what the Bible said. This is what you need to believe. They never put on those different glasses, those different hats, and they, they never saw. I mean, what a wonderful point you've yeah. just made, uh, why the gospel is good news. Yeah. 
I mean, it's good news because look at this horrific, like, look how these people are thinking. <laughs> read, <laughs> Save us, Jesus. That's right. Read, read uh, you know, the Trojan women or something like that. Right. And then, you know, and look at what the culture was like to be oh. a woman in that, in that culture and then see how the gospel is really good news. You know, I, I love that you brought up that point because there's a, there's a song. <laughs> so I, I'm going to, you know, indulge me as I go on a Brazilian oh, tangent. Yes, please. Um, so, you know. As you listen to the podcast, I'll occasionally, you know, mention something from my Brazilian background. But there, there's a song by, sort of, I guess, a sort of Bob Dylan of Brazil kind of figure. Um, you know, he's still popular and well known today. Um, but you know, his heyday was sort of in the '60s and really well known for his lyricism. Um, and he has a song called "The Women of Athens." that he wrote in the late 60s or or early 70s and it, it's a beautiful song about um how about how these women have to live their lives and uh and how the men treat her treat mm. them mm-hmm. and it's a little brutal so <laughs> and it was brutal <laughs> yeah well uh and and he is he is just he's been a, for decades he's been the darling of the brazilian left mm. Okay, friends with all the leftist presidents who come along, all that. It's a darling of the left. But that song has been excised from his history, even though he wrote it to be feminist. He wrote it to say, like, you know, this is, you know, these these women were courageous in the face of all this oppression and overcame it. Behold my feminist anthem. Right. Right. <laughs> and I love the song despite that. But but now we've progressed so far past feminism that we can't even talk about it. Mm, right. Yeah. We can't talk about Dr. Seuss. We can't talk about, you know, the women of Athens. You know, like <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> it just makes me crazy. I don't remember exactly what provoked that tangent, but well, but I think one of the things in in correct me if I'm wrong, but you can love that song despite what his intentions were because you can see it through the lens of the gospel. Yes, Whether or not yes. you're just conscientious of that as you're listening to the song, but you are looking at it through the lens of the gospel, right? right. And so we can actually have a, you know, we can learn to appreciate and have a true empathy for injustices done in in old cultures, see how the gospel answered those injustices and 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 brought about a new world. And the gospel never comes more to life than to be able to interact with some of these great ideas in the in the great conversation. And so for Christian students to be able to to interact with these these great ideas. Um, and then you know that you're actually getting this real liberal arts education when you begin to do things like you just did. This mm-hmm. reminds me of a song. This reminds me of this character in a story. Right. This reminds me of, because you have all of these echoes and these connections of how the world actually works, you know, for good or for bad, um, you know, high points and low points, but you can, you can recognize the world that we actually live in. And that um, is a true use, I think, of the word worldview in understanding mm. that. Yeah. So. <laughs> I right, push you right on, on the spot, right? <laughs> feel, You want to start free. that whole yeah, conversation yeah, again. Free Go to. back and listen to our worldview episode. Uh, <laughs> uh, in any case, so we want to encourage, um, obviously, the right kind of education. And there is, I'll mention just kind of as we, as we wrap up, there are three reasons um, besides being misled or, or schooled, and we've talked about you've been schooled, um, but, but there's three reasons why I think that people don't pursue a liberal arts education. Number one is because they don't understand what the meaning is. 
Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about the meaning in terms of where the words come from. The etymology of it teaches us what it means, and it means to free a person to to be cultured to into into human flourishing, human flourishing to be a free man and woman. But the other part that is most relevant, the second part, is that. We don't often see the util or we don't see the the usefulness of it because we're looking through utilitarian eyes. Right, right. We want to know what is this good for? What job is this going to help me to get? This isn't going to help you get any job, right? It might help you create jobs. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it, it it will it will it will teach you how to be. It will cultivate you into a creative person, a person of of of, of the world who understands how it works. And I use the world correctly there, not like you know John was <laughs> using it, just to, you know throw anybody Whoa. off there. Uh, but no, but you become a person who understands the cosmos as yes. as it was designed. And then the third reason, I think, is because when people have that utilitarian view of education, then the investment doesn't seem worth it. Right. You know, but what you're investing in when you give your child a liberal arts education is to help them to become a flourishing human being. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, yet another aside, but, you know, people listening, uh, listening to us and learning about Kepler education are are sort of thinking that seeing that we think alternatively about a lot of things, including uh, continuing education, adult education, superior education. So when you know, we think about university, uh, well, we're not always thinking about university mm-hmm. because because the system, quote unquote, is is so bankrupt, right? That's right. But what we're not looking for is shortcuts. Absolutely, we want a fulsome education, mm-hmm. but the university of southeastern North Idaho is not necessarily going to offer that. No. And I mentioned a couple episodes ago that we'll eventually get here in our, in our discussion, but I think we're going to have to completely tear down or it's going to have to fall on its face before we'll ever really recover what the university really was in this very beginning. Right. Okay. But the university is an outworking of the gospel. Mm. It isn't an outworking of secular humanism. The pagans did not, uh, the pagans tried, right? You had the academy and, you know, you, you had, um, was it Lycrum or whatever the, uh, I'm saying that wrong, uh, Aristotle school. Mm. Um, but, you know, you had these different schools, but they were temporary. They were short-lived. Yep. They, and they were very temporal. The universities are literally, I mean, Ox, Oxford, you know, it's been, yeah. it's been around longer, um, you know, than, I mean, what, what from, uh, well, University of Paris and Oxford back from the ninth, ninth century. Yep. These, these are an outworking of the gospel because of uh, the kind of thinking that we're talking about today. Yes. Of free men and women thinking about big ideas. And in the places where the gospel is fading and the church is crumbling. Those are the places where the university is going away. Yep. And they're being replaced by educational institutions. That's right. Right. Yep. So, well, that's it for our episode today. Um, The takeaway is this, give your children a liberal arts education, get them engaged in the great conversation, whether you do that with them uh, at home, or you exercise uh, the help of, you know, an online school, an online, um, uh, you know, platform like Kepler and, and be able to uh, make use of some of these masters, but give your children in it a, a, the kind of education that will make them free men and women. Mm. Well, any last words, Joffrey? I just want to warn the audience that uh, as the audio fades out, I'll be singing to them, The Women of Athens by Shukelborg. Oh, we got to hear it. <laughs> just, Go for just it. a couple of lines <laughs> with my dulcet tones. <laughs> you're, you're, overly positive reaction frightened me. (laughs) 
because you know I'm not a good singer. Anyway, so long, everybody. <laughs> Mirem-se no exemplo daquelas mulheres de Atenas. Vivem pros seus maridos, orgulho e raça de Atenas. Quando amadas se perturbam...